0: Let us begin with a word of prayer. Father, I do pray that you would help us. Our minds often aren't right, and we need you to make them right. We want to think your thoughts after you. We want to do it because we want to be like you, we want to be conformed to the image of Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. So, Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we'll ask you to do all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the course of history, it has become really clear that the church's deepest commitments are often clarified and expressed in the midst of its greatest crises. Time and again, throughout history, assaults on the faith have led to clarifications of the faith. Sometimes the challenges become so acute and so fundamental that faithfulness to Christ requires explicit declaration of our biblical conviction in the face of error. How many of you have heard the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany living during the time of the rise of the Third Reich. And in his own day, he believed that the church in Germany was facing such a threat. And one author described Bonhoeffer's situation this way. And I want you to listen to this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer declared a state of status confessionis for the church under Nazi Germany. How many of you have heard that term, status confessionis? It's not one we use a lot. Let me tell you what it means. Status confessionis, literally a state of confessing. That's what it means. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said we have to declare a state of confessing in Germany. A state of confessing is a dire situation in which the church must stand up for the integrity of the gospel and the authority of the God it confesses. For Bonhoeffer and others, the Nazification of the church was an issue so threatening to the veracity of their confession of Christ that no dissimulation or concession was possible. Bonhoeffer recognized that the Nazi persecution of Jews demanded a serious response from the church, but more so he recognized that the church was called not only to bandage the victims under the wheel, but to jam a spoke into the wheel itself and bring the entire engine of injustice to a halt. Confessing Christ was a theology that could not be held without obligation. End quote. It's from Jill Caratini. When we think about the situation that Bonhoeffer faced and the situation that you and I are facing right now in the aftermath, Of the sexual revolution is our situation any less dire now to be sure we're not facing the same kind of physical military threat like they were in nazi germany in our moment but that doesn't mean that we aren't facing a dire threat to the church's integrity and witness because we are facing that and the threat that we face is not due merely to influences coming from outside of the church, the confusion we're facing right now is even coming within the evangelical movement. I'll give you one example. 2015, one of the earliest evangelical books on gender identity, transgenderism, came out. It was titled Understanding Gender Dysphoria. The author of the book wrote a cover story for Christianity Today magazine. Remember when the whole Caitlyn Jenner thing happened? Christianity Day had a cover story. They got the author of this book to write it. Um, that book was reviewed by the Gospel Coalition as a step forward in Christian engagement with gender issues. And yet that book says, if you have a gender-confused child, cross-dressing that child might be the be- best prescription for that child. For adults dealing with transgender feelings, the book argues that sex change surgery might be the per- best prescription for them. These ideas are being sold inside churches and finding their way into congregation after congregation. What I want to say to you is that if Christians are unable to discern that surgeries destroying healthy organs are out of step with the gospel, then we are indeed in a state of confession right now. We are in a status confessionis. The title of my message this afternoon <clears throat> is all about gender identity. What does the Bible have to say about this? Now, before we launch in to the biblical exposition, I want to define a couple of terms for you. The first term is the word transgender. I think probably all of you know what this is by now, but let's just, in case, let's make sure we're on the same page. Transgender is a catch-all term that refers to the many ways that people might perceive their gender identity to be out of sync with their biological sex. Gender identity then is defined as a person's own self-conception of what their of their their own personal sense of being male or female or something in between. Now even something maybe even off the spectrum. But a, one's own self-perception of their maleness or femaleness or whatever in between, that's a person's gender identity. Until recently, relatively recently, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, otherwise known as the DSM, which is like the Bible for psychologists, the DSM had classified this experience as gender identity disorder. But in 2013, the DSM-5, fifth edition, removed that experience from its list of disorders and replaced it with another term, and you've heard this one too, gender dysphoria. They did this in part to remove the stigma from the transgender experience so that transgender people wouldn't have to say that they had a psychological disorder. If if you happen to have a, a gender identity out of sync with your biological sex, that's not necessarily a problem. The problem is if you feel mental distress about it. So gender dysphoria, okay, euphoria is like a really good feeling, dysphoria, a negative feeling, mental distress. If you've got mental distress over your gender identity, that's what needs to be fixed. You're trying to fix the mental distress, but it's not necessarily a problem that they're out of sync. And if you align things, you might as well just align the body to fit the mind. So what I want to do for the rest of my time is to outline what is the Bible saying about all of this? What is the Bible in particular teaching us about the distinction between male and female? Now, the Bible teaches us, obviously, what every faithful Christian must believe about this distinction, and I'm not even doing slides or projectors today because my outline is very simple. What the Bible teaches us about the distinction between male and female is three things, okay? The distinction between male and female is biological, the distinction between male and female is social, and the distinction between male and female is good. That's the entire message right there in a nutshell. So the first thing is this. The distinction between male and female is biological. I want everybody to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky... And over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, I know that you all are familiar with this text, but I want you to notice some things that have particular application to the gender identity question that we're addressing here this afternoon. Notice in verse 26. That the accent is on what the man and the woman have in common. What do they have in common? They are both created in God's image. They are both given responsibility to rule over God's good creation. They are to be like God's vice regents ruling on his behalf over the world that God has made. But they're both equally created in the image of God. A woman doesn't need a man to be created in the image of God. She has independent value and dignity all by herself. A man doesn't need a woman to be created in the image. He is an image bearer solitarily alone. That's why we believe in human dignity of every single person down from Adam and Eve down to us. It doesn't matter. All of us, is a common ancestry to Adam and Eve. And we're all equally created in the image of God, male or female. Here in the garden, they are given the job to rule over God's creation. And they're going to spread God's glory over the face of the earth like the waters cover the sea. How are they going to do that? Because they are image bearers. They specially reflect God. And when they come together, they are going to reflect God's glory over the face of the earth. Because these image bearers can make other little image bearers and they will spread the image of God over the face of the earth like the waters cover the sea. That was the original design, and the man and the woman both had that commission from God. Verse 27. Notice there that the accent is on difference. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Here we find out that these divine image bearers come in two distinct genres, male and female. And it's right here that the biblical revelation stands in direct contrast to the aims and purposes of the transgender moment that you and I are living in. What do I mean by this? It's not that there's any real controversy today, at least at the popular level, about there being a difference between male and female. You could talk to your average transgender person and they would say, yeah, there's a difference between male and female. They they hold to masculine and feminine stereotypes. The real conflict is about what what makes them different. The controversy is about how to define those differences. What makes male and female different? Is it a biological thing? Is it a self-concept? Or is it something else altogether? How do you define male Or Now, a while back, I received a letter from the parents of a transgender child. They had a son who had grown up from as long as they could remember with gender-conflicted feelings. He, um, He had always grown up kind of feeling attracted towards enacting the role of a female. As an adult, their son, nevertheless, he got married to a woman. He had children with this woman, and after being married for a number of years he decided to end his marriage and to transition his appearance to that of a female, eventually he even underwent so-called sex change surgery. And I'll just say this in parentheses. I say so-called sex change surgery because you know there's not really such a thing as a sex change surgery. You can't change your sex. You can have a physician surgically alter your body to make it look like something other than what it is. But on the other side of it, you will not be fertile as the other sex. And before that surgery, if you had XY sex chromosomes, you will have XY sex chromosomes after that surgery. And if you had XX chromosomes before that, you will have the same thing afterward. Your sex won't change, but your body will take on all manner of destruction and dysfunctionality, but you can't change your sex. He has a sex change surgery, what they now sometimes call gender reassignment surgery. And if you're super woke, you call it gender affirmation surgery, okay? But you can't change your sex. These parents told me, and they wrote to me, because they're Christians, they claimed, And they say they support the transition that their son had undergone, because they believe their son's transgender identity is the result of his brain sex, Being mismatched with his biological sex. They believed that his mind has always been female, even though his body has always been male. They said that they wrote to me the most important human sex organ they believe was the mind. And so they said he was simply born with the wrong genitals. They claim. This is a scriptural claim. They say the scripture is silent about the biological factors that distinguish male from female and that there's no scriptural authority for prioritizing genital anatomy over brain structure and function. For that reason, they feel that their child's body needed to be transformed through surgery so that it would match his mind. And so they supported their child's gender reassignment surgery And they were doing so as Christians, they argued. It was a biblical thing they were doing and that I was misunderstanding scripture. They had seen something that I had written or spoke on and they said that I was wrong about this. So they were taking exception with me and they supported this as Christians, as a Christian way to move forward even though it cost him his marriage and his family. These parents have bought into what psychologists called a brain sex theory of sexual development. The brain sex theory says that our brains script us towards male or female behaviors and dispositions. But sometimes, according to brain sex theory, our brains gender, its structure and development doesn't match up with that of our biological sex. This is a theory, it's not established, it's just a theory. Um, But it's, a lot of people hold this, and they say when this is the case, proponents of brain sex theory believe that what a person thinks about themselves should trump what is otherwise revealed through biological sex. And so these parents wrote to me and they said, this is a quote, you have chosen without any scriptural authority that I can find to prioritize genital anatomy over brain structure and function in determining sex and gender. This is the claim that you're hearing more and more in popular culture. People in our churches are hearing this too. They are starting to believe this. And they're being told that brain structures determine maleness or femaleness. Sex and gender are determined not by reproductive anatomy, but by how a person feels about themselves, their brain structure. And many Christians are going for this. But what I want you to notice is what the Bible says. Okay, Everybody look at verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We're trying to ask and answer the question, in the Bible, what do male and female mean? What does God say about male and female? He says the male and the female are to be fruitful and multiply. And you know what that means. The creation mandate requires procreation within the covenant of marriage. And it takes a man with a male reproductive system and a woman with a female reproductive system to do that. You tell me, does God use the terms male and female in Genesis 1 to refer to brain structures? We don't procreate with our brains. Or do male and female refer to the differences in the reproductive systems of the man and the woman? You know the answer to that question. Ryan Anderson writes in his book on this topic, he says, the fundamental conceptual distinction between a male and a female is the organism's organization for sexual reproduction. Now, this is what everybody knew until about three days ago. But now we are having to say what everybody always assumed before. And we're having to say it and connect it to Scripture. It was always there but we're having to say it and show people where it is in the Bible. It's the body's organization for reproduction. That's the difference between male and female. That's what's reflected in nature. It's certainly what's reflected in Moses's creation account. That means if the body says male, but the brain says female, the brain is wrong in a fallen world where sin affects every single part of God's creation, including our bodies and including our minds. In a fallen world where that is the case, what we think about ourselves can and often is mistaken. And that's certainly the case with the transgender experience. The distinction between male and female is, first of all, biological. And the biological distinction in view has to do with the body's organization For reproduction, quite apart from any consideration of brain structures or function. If that's true, there are massive implications for how you are supposed to minister the gospel to people dealing with gender-confused feelings. And guess what? It's everywhere now. Massive implications for how you are supposed to minister the gospel to them. How you are supposed to help them. It means that you can tell them on the authority of God's word that their body isn't lying to them. A person's maleness or femaleness isn't socially constructed or self-constructed. It is God's constructed. Sex is not something that is assigned at birth. It is something that is revealed by God in his special distinct design of male and female bodies. The world is telling gender confused people and even gender confused children, if they perceive themselves to have a gender identity at odds with their bodily identity, then the mind takes precedence over their body. The world is telling them to take steps to conform their body to the gender confused mind rather than to conform the gender confused mind to what God has revealed in the body. If that means dressing that body in clothing associated with the opposite sex, then so be it. If that means reshaping the body through the amputation of healthy sexual organs, then so be it. If that means taking a 16-year-old girl and cutting her breasts off in a double mastectomy, then so be it. The fallen mind trumps the creator's design of the body. And what God has revealed about maleness and femaleness through the body can and must be set aside. This is the message, though, that we have to prepare people to resist. By pointing them to scripture and by pointing them to nature, both of which are teaching that the distinction between male and female is biological, according to the body's organization for reproduction. So the distinction between male and female, if you don't get anything else, please get this. The distinction is biological, according to the body's organization for reproduction. The second thing, the distinction between male and female is social. Everybody look at Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. This is verse 18. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Drop down to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken from man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were." not ashamed now if the basic biological distinction between male and female is clear to some people at least it's often the case that the social roles that stem from biological differences are are often not clear at the very least those differences are fiercely contested Uh, especially in the 20th century with the um Second wave feminism, and now third wave feminism, and now queer theory. All of these things have have changed the way. It's gone from the ivory tower into Main Street. And now it's in your kid's bedroom and on his computer screen. Okay, these ideas have come down. And so this is very fiercely contested today, that there would be social distinctions between male and female based on the body's organization for reproduction. And yet, scriptural revelation clearly teaches a social distinction between this first man and first woman. The foundational text there is Genesis 2. This text is revealing two kinds of complementarity between the male and the female. There's a sexual complementarity. In other words, their their body's organization for reproduction is meant to come together in a procreative pair. We all know what that means. But there's also a gender complementarity that's there. So sex is referring to something biological, gender referring to something social. What you're hearing from the world is that gender, the social obligations that stem from, the social obligations attached to gender are just socially constructed and made up. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches here. Uh, These gender obligations are referring to the social manifestation of one's biological sex. Sex is a physical, bodily reality. Reality. Gender is a sociocultural reality. The spirit of the age is telling you that the relationship between gender and sex is purely conventional, in no way essential. It's telling you that gender is a social construct. It's just a set of customs and behaviors that you learn from your culture, but has no essential connection or relationship to biological sex. And that's why they would argue some people's gender identity doesn't match their bodily identity. But what does this text say? Look at verse 18. Verse 18 says that it's not good for the man to be alone, so I'm going to make a helper who corresponds to the man. That's the complementarity part, the corresponding to the man. means completes the man as a procreative pair. But he also calls her a helper, which is somebody who comes alongside and assists another person in a, a job that they've been given to do. So it's a, that is fundamentally, within marriage, a social role, how she relates to her husband, a role that's inextricably linked to her biological sex. Adam can't say to Eve, let's trade roles. Okay, She can't say to Adam, you take, I'll be the head, you be the, the helper. That's not how this works. It's intrinsically connected to the maleness and the femaleness of each of them. Adam's creation before Eve designates a social role Within his marriage to Eve, a headship role we read about in Ephesians 5 and in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says "For 1 Corinthians 11, I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her, hus- is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And then it says in verse 8, "For a man w- For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Why in the world would Paul say that the woman was made for the man? Because he's reading Genesis. And Genesis says that the woman is a helper in her relationship to her her husband. Some people are going to hear that and they're going to say, wait a minute, Denny, we're talking about gender identity, we're talking about transgenderism, you're talking about marriage obligations. You're talking about differences between male and female and social roles, differences that narrowly apply to the covenant of marriage, not creational distinctions that apply to every male and every female, regardless of their marital status. To which i want to say well yes and no okay that's correct and it's incorrect yes headship and helpership are covenantal obligations that apply narrowly to marriage it is very true i am not the head of anyone else's wife and none of you are the head of my wife okay and it's very important that all of us understand that all men are not the head of all women so that's true in that covenantal sense but it's not correct to deny the creational distinctions that make male and female fitted for their covenantal roles. And those have social obligations. Okay, so in the middle of the night, if it sounds like somebody is breaking through our front door, I don't say, sweetie, go check on that. (laughs) Why? Look at me. I mean, I she is a lot smaller than me. I'm a lot bigger. There's a difference between a man and a woman, generally speaking, between their bodies. Men are generally bigger and stronger, have thicker bone mass, thicker muscle mass, faster. That doesn't mean every man is stronger than every woman. It doesn't mean that. It does mean if I take 100 men at random, 100 women at random, I line them up from strongest to weakest, and I stand them across from each other, every man will be standing across from a woman that he's stronger than. That's what it means. Why is there that bodily, physical distinction between a male and a female? It happens at puberty. There's an enormous amount of testosterone that releases into a young man's body at puberty, and it begins Forming bigger bones, bigger muscles. Everything about him changes. A woman's body begins to be flooded with estrogen. Everything changes to make her able to bear children. She can raise a human being in her body. And after that baby is born, she can nurture that child from her body. You think that has any social manifestations? You think those physical realities have any social consequences? Do you think the physical reality that I'm bigger and stronger than my wife has a social obligation on me when the door breaks down in the middle of the night? It does. There's massive implications. And everyone in human history understood that until yesterday. There are creational differences of temperament and disposition between little boys and little girls. Did you ever notice that? And those differences have social consequences. Those differences must be celebrated, not denigrated or ignored or dismissed as a social construct. I wish I had more time. Oh, goodness. Men, in your marriages, you need to be leaders and protectors and providers. If you have a son, I I don't care if he likes football or hunting or dancing or whatever, but you should teach him to be a leader and a protector and a provider. God has designed him for that. This is not made up out of the ether. This is in the Bible. It's written in every cell of our bodies. What does it mean? It means that God has so made the world that there's a normative, holy connection between biological sex and gender identity. The social roles of the first man and the first woman are not interchangeable. All of this presumes a normative connection between biological sex and the social roles designed for that sex. It also presumes that a man understands himself to be a man. And a woman understands herself to be a woman. When someone adopts a gender identity at odds with their bodily identity, they are tearing apart something that God meant to be together. That a male body should coincide with a male self-concept and that a female body should coincide with a female self-concept. That's how God designed the first man and the first woman. That's how he designed all of us. That's how things should be. Even though in a fallen world, some people feel that connection to be broken, we're not denying that some people feel that way. We know that they feel that way. Even though some people feel that connection to be broken, and we want to do everything we can to care for them and to help them, even though that's the case, we know that God aims to restore that connection in the new creation. There will be no transgender identities in the new heavens and the new earth. Every man will know himself as a man. Every woman will know herself as a woman. And you will be in a male body or a female body. Even though there's no marriage in the age to come. The distinction between male and female is biological. It's social. Last thing. And don't miss this. It is good. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and look at verse 4. If you you know anything about the context here, I'll just quickly give it to you. Paul is confronting some false teachers in Ephesus. These false teachers were saying, among other things, that marriage is bad. You ought not to get married. Don't don't get married. Saying certain foods were bad, but don't get married. It's good to stay unmarried, don't get married. Paul says, verse four, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. So you got some false teachers in Ephesus saying marriage is bad, don't do it. And you got Paul saying, wait a minute, everything created by God is good. And guess who created marriage? God. And guess, according to Jesus in Matthew 19, guess what you have to have for a marriage? You have to have a male and a female. Remember that? Have you not read, at the very beginning, he created a male and female, Jesus said, quoted Genesis 1. So you've got marriage, which is predicated upon a male-female distinction, and you've got a group of teachers saying it's bad. Paul says it's good. Where in the world is Paul getting the idea that this male-female distinction-based marriage is good. He's just reading his Bible again. He's reading Genesis 1. You read throughout the six days of creation. At the end, all throughout those six days of creation, God looks at what he has made and he sees that it's good. He makes the male and the female and he says it's very good. Paul's just reading his Bible. If he's got false teachers saying marriage is bad, and he's got his Bible saying marriage is good, guess who's right? It's the Bible that's right. The false teachers are wrong and have to close their mouths. And so Paul's affirming that it's very good. Male-female distinction based marriage. Now, this is why I brought you to this text. We're in 1 Timothy 4. We're in Ephesus in the first century, which means we're a thousand, two thousand, however many thousands of years east of Eden. We're in the broken, fallen world. And there's a question. Is male-female distinction still good after sin comes into the world and everything is broken? Is it still good? Paul says it's good based on what Genesis 1 says. What that means for us is that our appraisal of male and female distinction in this fallen world that we live in must be the same appraisal that God gives it. If God says that it's good, we must not do or say anything that implies that it's bad or harmful. That means that your counsel to a gender-confused child or adult must always be for their good and flourishing and their good and flourishing, guess who gets to define that? It's not their broken self-concept that defines their good and flourishing. It's what God's revelation says is for their good and flourishing. It's not defined by LGBT propagandists who are aiming to efface and destroy God's design through destructive hormone therapies and so-called sex change surgeries. Several years ago, a medical doctor named Michael Laidlaw reviewed a book about a 17-year-old transgender reality show star. This is a minor child. And this reality show and then a book that was written about it is tracing the life of this minor child growing up transgender and finally uh, at 17, still a minor, contemplating a sex change, so-called sex change surgery. The a young boy. Dr. Michael Laidlaw writes a review of what this child is about to go through in this surgery. Keep in mind that this child, already being treated with puberty blockers, so his growth has been stunted because his puberty has been put on pause. He's already probably been rendered infertile for life. Also keep in mind that this child is suffering from depression Nevertheless, with the support of his parents and healthcare providers, he's now exploring life-altering surgery. I'm just gonna read to you what this doctor, how he describes the surgery. Here it is. And I'm gonna self edit because I want to be as modest as possible, but I want you to hear this, okay? What type of surgical procedure is this child considering for the treatment of gender dysphoria? Typically, surgery turning a male into a trans female involves dissecting the male organ turning the skin inside out, placing it into a surgically created cavity to create a false female organ. After surgery, a dilator has to be placed into this artificial female organ to keep it from collapsing. Now just pause here for a second. They have to put a dilator in there because your body treats it as a wound. Because it is a wound. You are not becoming that other thing. You are not becoming the opposite sex when you do this. You are creating a wound in your body. Have you heard of any of the detransitioners talk about what it's like on the other side of these surgeries? It's horrific. I continue. So they've got to create this whole structure. But this child has a problem. Since he has a small child-sized male organ because of the puberty blockers, Potential uh, he does not have enough skin to line the false female organ. Potential remedies include sewing in a section of intestine along with the male organ skin to make the false female organ. In one episode, the child is actually offered two different surgeries, one surgery to create the false female organ and a second surgery two months later to attempt to form the labia. The need for two dangerous surgeries instead of one is directly related to the effects of puberty blockers. If you thought the spirit of Moloch died with the ancient Near East, you need to think again. We have parents, health care providers prescribing the amputation of healthy body parts in a minor child, all in service of an ideology that's completely foreign to nature and foreign to scripture. And they are doing so not because they think they're harming the child, they think they're doing something good for the child. You tell me what's good. To conform a troubled mind to a healthy body or to conform a healthy body to a troubled mind? Is this child's male body lying to him about who God made him to be? Or is his mind lying to him about his gender identity? When parents in your church come to you heartbroken over their child's experience of gender confusion, do you know what you're going to say? Are you going to have the clarity and the conviction to stand against the soul-destroying propaganda that's telling them to block their child's puberty and perhaps even to put them under the knife? I I don't know if you know what's going on right now, but you know there's been like a 4,000% increase in adolescent young girls identifying as transgender over the last 10 years? 4,000%. I have a whole other message. We could talk about that. 4,000%. And you know what these people at the gender clinic are telling these parents who are reluctant about this? They're telling them, would you rather have a dead daughter or a live son? If you don't go through with this, they're going to kill themselves. It'll be your fault. That's what they're telling them. What are you going to tell them? If you're going to be a faithful disciple of Jesus, you have to have the clarity and conviction to stand in that moment. And you do it. Because you love them. And you want what's good for for them and for their child. And love, guess what? The Bible says, nobody else gets this in the world. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 13, love always rejoices in the what? The truth. We live in a world that defines love as unconditional affirmation. Can you imagine if your parents loved you with unconditional affirmation? What kind of a human being you would be right now? We would be damned if people treated us that way. Love always rejoices in the truth. If you love that child and those parents, you know what you're going to do? You're going to grieve with them. You're going to see some parents that are very distressed over their children. You're going to grieve with them. You're going to weep with them. And You know what else you're going to do? You're going to try to give them the gospel of the Lord Jesus. You're going to tell them that he has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And then you know what else you're going to do? If you're faithful to Jesus, you are going to point them toward the path to wholeness and healing, which means you will always encourage people suffering this way to resolve their self-conflict in a way that affirms and celebrates their biological sex, not in a way that attempts to destroy it. That's what you're going to do. If ever there were a need for clarity and conviction on this question, it is right now. Because I don't know if you've noticed this, but this is everywhere. This is not just in the blue states on the edges of the country. This is everywhere. I travel around the country. You would not believe the stories that I'm hearing right now. It's happening everywhere. It's happening on the edges and in the middle and everywhere in between. And people are reeling over this. And I'm concerned about this for everybody, but I am super concerned about this for the minor children. Because their parents are being emotionally blackmailed into doing things against their conscience. They want to do the right thing, and they're listening to these therapists telling them, would you rather have a dead daughter or a live son? (laughs) And they're being emotionally blackmailed into these things that are self-destructive for these kids. And I wanna know who in in this country, in this culture is gonna stand up and say something, and is gonna stand in between these children and gender-affirming care, so-called gender-affirming care. Listen, I'm looking around, and everybody's running scared right now. Nobody wants to say anything. And if we don't say anything, I don't know who else is going to do it. This is a challenge for every single Christian trying to be faithful in the face of mounting external pressures. At the end of the day, what God declares to be good is what is good. Even if fallen minds don't perceive it to be so. And that means that male and female difference can only be ignored to our own hurt. It also means that the claims of transgender proponents are on a collision course, not only with human flourishing, but also with God's blessing. It's on a collision course with reality. And I hope you see that we are not talking about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. That is not what this is about. This is about real people and real lives. And whether or not they are going to be connected to the truth And connected to life and healing or whether or not they are going to destroy themselves and if we can't stand in the gap for that what can we stand for father i pray that you would use your word to change and to transform your people if i've said anything helpful and that's conforming to your word i pray that everybody would remember that and if there's something in here that's not helpful or ill-considered, help them to forget it quickly. But everything that is true and right and good and of good repute, Lord, I pray that you would sow this into the hearts and the minds of your people and give them clarity and strength and courage. Make us like Christ, we pray. Do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.